You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 396, The Battle of Mercer Matru. Last time, General Ritchie and C&C Auchinleck had agreed to General Gott's pullback idea, but the space gained evaporated as Rommel had his reconnaissance units follow right behind the Allies as they set up at Mercer Matru. This latest move did not impress Auchinleck, nor had Ritchie's other moves recently. So, on the eve of battle, June 25th, General Ritchie was relieved of command of British 8th Army. Auchinleck himself would direct the troops this time. Problem was, he had no time to redeploy his men. The battle would unfold as is. And yet... Auchinleck could not change the already laid out detailed operation plans, but he could and did change operation policy. Quote, I intend to keep all troops fluid and mobile and strike at enemy from all sides. Armor not to be committed unless very favorable opportunity presents itself. At all costs, and even if ground is given up, I intend to keep 8th Army in being and to give no hostage to fortune in the shape of immobile troops holding localities which can be easily isolated. Next, the CNC, in trying to approve upon what had recently happened in North Africa, told the battle groups, only troops that can fit in a truck can stay. The rest have to go back to El Alamein. In other words, the brigades within the battle groups could only have as many men and artillery as could be carried or pulled by trucks. If not, they were to head out. Auchinleck did not want another single soldier trapped near the front without mobility. This was a good idea, but perhaps 
not the best time to implement it. And once again, the New Zealander Freiburg refused to go along with this. He would not separate his men. He contacted his government directly to protest. And lastly, now that all the battle groups were to be mobile, there was to be much more coordination of artillery units, an unstoppable force, if you will, to stop the panzers. This was a solid move, and when more effective communication was worked out, this step would go a long ways to the victory at El Alamein. June 26, the day of battle, came. But it did not start out as propitious as Rommel would have hoped. First, there was not enough petrol with his various columns to take off. This was not helped by the enemy's desert air force harassing all it could and actually reducing the number of tanks and trucks the attackers had. Still, that afternoon, the 90th Light and 21st Panzer Divisions got underway, driving east between the escarpments. The minefields were not the blockage that Ritchie had hoped they would be, as by this time, both sides were adept at removing enough mines to make a path. Once past the mines, the 5th Indian Division's columns were equally dealt with. When the sun went down, the panzers had no choice but to hold up for the night, knowing that they could have gone further if they had left earlier. But on such things, the fate of battle hangs. Getting up early the next day, June 27th, the two panzer divisions started up again. But as they were the northernmost thrust, they soon ran into the guns of the 50th Division. The Germans had seen this before and charged ahead, and with their momentum, one defending battalion did scatter before them, but the rest of the men did not. The more the 90th moved in, the more they suffered losses. This was no way to win a battle, or frankly, survive a battle. So the 90th would end up pulling back that June 27th to regroup and to check on their wounded. As the 10th Indian Division was near Matru itself, and just above the northern escarpment, when the 90th Light Division pulled back, Indian troops were sent to keep the harassment going, but failed. Though the 90th Light could not go any further east, that did not mean approaching them had suddenly become easy. Nor could the 10th Indian close the gaps in the minefield recently created. So far, the battle was a draw. Meanwhile, below the southern escarpment, the 15th Panzer had gotten underway, but was soon checked by the tanks and guns of 1st Armored Division. The 4th and 22nd Armored Brigade groups had no intention of letting the 15th Panzer pass by. No more running. However, the 1st Armored Division was supposed to have received a surprise when Rommel had the 21st Panzer, just below the 90th light, but still in between the two escarpments, drive east until they reached the gap in the southern escarpment at Minkar Gayam. They were to have come south through the pass and hit the 1st Armored in the rear. All they had to do was get past Freiburg's New Zealanders. But it seems that Freiburg was just as stubborn in his dealings with the enemy as he was with his superiors. The New Zealanders would not let any of those panzers make their way south. Early on, during that June 27th, 
Auchinleck, being ever prudent, had sent a message to General William Holmes of 10th Corps and Gott, saying, if retreat becomes necessary, they were to fall back to Fuca, about 25 miles or 40 kilometers east of Mercer Matru. Again, this was prudent, should things fall apart, but it also helped set into motion an unfortunate series of events. The code word for this withdrawal, should it be needed, was the word pike. Sadly for the defenders, their communications were poor. Spotty is a word that comes to mind. And because of this spottiness, the two generals did not know of what the other was doing, nor how they were faring. This led to confusion. The cousin of panic. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Back to the battle, as tough as Freiburg's New Zealanders were, the 21st Panzer gave up on a direct assault and settled for the next best thing. They went a bit further east, got in behind Freiburg's men, and scattered the New Zealanders' trucks. Suddenly, Auchinleck's dicta that each unit had to have the means to travel was gone. But now, the poor communications between the various forces would dominate the battle. As things stood, though Auchinleck nor any of his generals knew this, the German divisions were scattered, a situation that Rommel had been able to take advantage of when fighting Ritchie previously. But now, as the CNC had stressed a closer degree of cooperation, that was not possible, as the left hand could barely talk to the right hand, much less agree to meet up and crush the various enemy units between them. About 12 miles, or 19 kilometers, due east of the New Zealanders' position was Gott's 13th Corps headquarters. And as was his wont, he rode about the battlefield, trying to get a sense of how it was shaping up. Unfortunately, he saw the New Zealanders' trucks driving away and assumed that that force had been scattered. Thus, the Germans were once again dominating the field of battle. The truth was, as we have seen, Freiburg's men were just fine. They had gathered their guns and made the Germans bleed every time they came close, which is why the latter went after the former's trucks a softer target. But Gott saw this and assumed the worst, and in this he cannot be blamed, given how the last few weeks had gone in North Africa. 
At 7.20 p.m., God ordered his corps to pull back and retreat. Specifically, the 1st Armored and the 5th Indian Divisions were to head to Fuca, again 15 miles or 24 kilometers east of his headquarters location. Another assumption that got made, not his best moment, was not bothering to tell the New Zealanders anything as he guessed they were scattered to hell and back, trying to find their trucks. As things worked out, Freiburg got the gist of what was happening and organized his men for a breakout after dark. This meant driving right through the 21st Panzer as they had settled down for the night, but it was done. And not knowing that Fuca was the new destination, Freiburg took his men, minus his dead, to El Alamein. When he arrived two days later, he had to report some 800 casualties. Back to the day of the retreat, June 27th. Just after Gott told his men to be ready to retreat at 7.20 p.m., he then radioed Auchinleck of his decision. With this done, the CNC did not hesitate to send out the code PIKE for general retreat. However, again, with communications being weak, General Holmes of 10th Corps, who had been trying to send men south to help Gott, but the latter had started to bug out, did not get the message until early the next day. This forced Holmes to plan a breakout himself, as the fighting French had done weeks ago. And in this, the god of war stepped in. By the morning of June 28th, Rommel had already some of his forces behind Mursa Matru proper. This was made possible as the 90th Light got past Matru, but still to the south, and then turned north to make for the coast road. Thus Holmes only had to contend with the exhausted 90th Light as the Italians were busy investing Mursa Matru. Like the New Zealanders, however, Holmes and his men waited and then ran through the settled-down enemy troops, which evolved into a running fight. By the time 10th Corps reached El Alamein, General Holmes still had about 60% of his force. June 29th was spent by both sides racing east between the doomed Mursa Matru and El Alamein. Yet, as they dashed east, both sides tried to avoid each other's columns. The British, because they were not set up to fight, and the Germans, because Rommel only had 40 tanks and 60 men as his spear point. But like when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon and entered his first town, the number of men with him mattered less than his reputation of invincibility. Most of the British forces used the coastal road for increased speed, but when Rommel got to Fuca, again about 25 miles east of Mursa Matru, he had most of his forces leave the road and cut across the desert. His lead force was pointing right at the center of the El Alamein line. His hope was that they were not too well set up, or even better, might be given another order to retreat but Auchinleck would not. And before June 29th was over, the poor 90th Light Division would be ordered to catch up to Rommel ASAP. To these men, they could not remember a time when, with all possible speed, was not a standard order. Still, the men loaded up and dashed their way east. 
and though they were tired, when they arrived near the El Alamein line near noon on June 30th, they were sent right in with no rest. But still five miles shy of the El Alamein station at Tel El Isa, the dominant rise in the area just south of the coast road, enemy artillery forced the 90th Light to hold up. Not unexpectedly, as Alexandria was only 70 miles or 112 kilometers east of El Alamein, there was panic in the streets of Cairo, the political center of the country. Rumors went round that the British fleet was leaving Alexandria. All was lost. The journalist Alan Moorhead observed, In Cairo, there was another curfew. The streets were jammed with cars that had evacuated from Alexandria, and military traffic had come from the front. The British consulate was besieged with people seeking visas to Palestine. The eastbound Palestine trains were jammed. A thick mist of smoke hung over the British embassy by the Nile and over the sprawling blocks of GHQ. Huge quantities of secret documents were being burnt. Strangely, the opposite of what was happening in Cairo was not happening in Berlin, that being shouts of joy and champagne being offered to anyone with a glass. No, Hitler, who had never taken much interest in matters naval, had enjoyed watching Rommel's exploits, who now was surely at the zenith of his military career. But der Fuhrer had his own career, his own destiny, to worry about. When 8th Army had been retreating to Mursa Matru, and Auchinleck had flown in to consult with General Ritchie about another defensive line at El Alamein, Hitler had launched his next phase of Operation Barbarossa, namely Operation Blue, the offensive that was to capture the oil fields in the Caucasus. Soon enough, though, taking Stalingrad would be added to this. Thus, barely anyone in Berlin spoke of Rommel's greatest achievement. If anything, it may have been expected of him. But as all North Africa would find out soon enough, that part of the world, as far as Hitler was concerned, was on its own. The greatest battle the world would ever see, Stalingrad, was about to get underway. As American military gear was really starting to be felt in North Africa, the following note from the head of the U.S. Army's Intelligence Division would have chilled those in Churchill's war cabinet. Quote, It would be a matter of a week or less before the final military decision and warned that the probability of the British catastrophe must be counted upon. It is therefore recommended that no more planes be sent to the Middle East, and that all supplies at sea be stopped at Massawa in modern-day Eritrea on the Red Sea, until the military situation in Egypt becomes clarified. As success can build on itself, so can failure. Postscript. A few observations. On member episode 209, released just this week, which is a part of the series covering Enigma, Operation Primrose, the convoy system, and the Western Approaches Command that oversaw the convoys, one future professor, Francis Harry Hinsley, makes an appearance. 
He had been studying medieval history at Cambridge before the war, but now he worked in Hut 4 at Bletchley, trying to discern patterns in Enigma signals, though they could not be read yet. Hensley could have possibly changed the outcome or the severity of the Norway campaign had his observations been listened to by certain people in the Admiralty. They would come around in time. Still, that would not bring back those lost aboard the carrier HMS Glorious and its two escorts, Akata and Ardent. Professor Hensley contends that only after Brigadier Francis Freddy D. Guiand became the Director of Military Intelligence in the Middle East, that General Headquarters really began to integrate secret intelligence with operation planning and decision-making in February 1942. Whereas some historians argue that this did not take place until Monty was placed in charge of the 8th Army. Either way, it would happen, and knowing how many tanks Rommel had would help with attack, but also defense. For that was the entire point of counterintelligence, to know the cards in the other person's hand. The good news for 8th Army was that, around the spring of 1942, Enigma decrypts were pretty accurate in estimating the number of panzers Rommel had. The problem was Churchill. He simply saw the numbers, saw that his side had more, and demanded from Auchinleck an offensive. But as the man on the ground, there was volumes of difference in between what the CNC knew versus his prime minister, which is why Auchinleck and others before him continued to ask for more time. The man in charge in the Middle East knew that the British-made tanks had mechanical and design weaknesses. Therefore, time was needed to train the men on these and how to compensate for them. The good news was that the American Grant tanks were starting to arrive. The bad news was time was needed for the men to learn how to use them. But more than that, Auchinleck could see the need for improvement as touching training, all sorts, leadership, organization, and doctrine. If anything, because of these weaknesses, the CNC wanted more time and a superiority in armor before they moved out, knowing that they would lose many tanks in the process. A loss of a certain percentage was baked into the plans, but Churchill, and to a degree CIGS Alan Brooke, focused on the numbers and regularly screamed, Why are you standing still? Why aren't you attacking? And it must be remembered that though Ultra gave up roughly when Rama would attack and how many tanks he had, there was never revealed his plan of attack but that would come later. Something to consider. Starting in June 1942, German Army Enigma signals went from a week to a day to be decrypted. Even better, the tactical Enigma links between field formations had also been broken, as had the Enigma messages between Luftwaffe liaison officers within Army units. And by the end of June, C&C Middle East was getting Rommel's own daily reports to the German high command with only a 24-hour delay, which is how Auchinleck knew that Tobruk 
was a specific target in mid-June, which is why he stressed to Ritchie to leave enough men there to protect it. But as we have seen, that's not how that turned out. And finally, Ultra allowed Auchinleck to know that Rommel planned on outflanking the defensive line being set up at the Egyptian border, which is why he approved the fallback to Mirsa Matru and wanted another line at El Alamein. His faith in Ritchie was gone by then, which is why he was sacked. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So if you hear noise, I apologize. My uh, girls uh, and my wife just got home, and they have to talk about their day. And for some reason, they have to do that very loudly. I don't know why I'm hardly ever included in those conversations. Anyway, side sidetrack there. Anyways, uh, I'd like to, th- to finish off thanking the members and those who have recently donated, and then we'll be all caught up. Let's see here. As far as those who have recently become members and they get the two extra episodes a month, uh, let's see here. Neville Bleakley uh, from Chiefly, Australia. Chiefly? I'm not sure. Neville, you're going to have to tell me about that one. Um, Dan Schaefer from Cary, North Carolina. Uh, Dan, I hope you've got power. I know a part of the state was was out. I hope you're doing okay. Uh, Rich Bruno from, uh, I think he moved here just to hear me try to say this. Matta Poinsett, Massachusetts, and then uh, Adam Allman from Minnetonka, Minnesota, and finally, Michael Matthew from Abilene, Texas. For whatever it's worth, I don't know Texas, uh, uh, Michael, but I will be in Fort Worth in late January, appearing on someone's aviation show. I don't have the information in front of me, but on the next episode, I'll let you know if anybody wants to come by and say hi. But Fort Worth, Texas, late January next year. As far as those who have donated, uh, there is Brett Thompson and Richard Van Stolk. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, It makes Christmas shopping a lot easier. There is one more person that I would like to say hi to just because he asked. That would be one Michael Hodow. Hopefully I'm saying that right, Michael. Um, I've lost the message. I can't remember... (laughs) what we were talking about, but you asked, and since I'm a very nice person, no matter what my wife, friends, children, or everybody who knows me says, I'm a good guy. So, hello, Michael. When you get this, I hope you're having a great day. Thank you, everyone. We will be back next week with the next episode, and as always, especially this time of the year, take care, everyone.